Hey, this is Chris. Don't skip ahead to the episode yet. We're conducting a listener survey of people listening to RCV clips. First-timers, long-timers, occasional listeners, anybody. Please fill out the survey linked to in the show notes for this episode to help us make RCV clips even better. Thanks! Welcome to the February 2023 episode of RCV Clips, our podcast about all things ranked choice voting. I'm Kelly, a member of the Resource Center staff. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Julie and Grace about voter and candidate education. We are so excited to have you both here. Grace, Julie, thank you so much for joining us today in the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're all the way from Alaska too, Julie. Thank you. We we wanted to make sure that it wasn't recording too early today for you. So appreciate you being on here. Um, let's get started by introducing yourselves to our audience, to our listeners, and tell them a little bit about your connection to RCV and why you're here to talk about voter education with us today. So my name is Grace Ramsey, and I'm one of the co-directors of an organization called Democracy Rising. We focus on a couple different things, kind of two different key programming areas. We want to build a diverse bench of leaders in the democracy reform or democracy innovation space. Uh, And then the other part of it is when reforms get passed, we want to make sure that they are implemented effectively. I am the point person on on our ranked choice voting programming. Uh, I have been working on ranked choice voting and voter education for over nine years. I feel sometimes I'm the opposite of Grace. I am very new to the reform space, but I believe in the mission. I worked for the Alaska State Legislature for over 20 years, and I have seen our working legislature go from everybody trying to do what's best for everyone and coming to the table and talking to each other to an environment where it seems like nobody wants to do that anymore, and we can't seem to get things out of gridlock. So I come to this space, I guess, pure of heart, that's not opposite of grace, but <laughs> pure of heart in the sense that I came to this because I learned the lessons of what happens when we don't have a good starting space with our elections. And I firmly believe in getting as many people out to vote as possible and being able for them to be able to express their opinions of the candidates and get the people they want in office. Absolutely. And I think the same could be said for a lot of us in this world of ranked choice voting. You know, our goal is for voters to have more choice and we want them to understand how to vote in a ranked choice voting election. We want the candidates to understand what it means to be a candidate in a ranked choice voting election. So Grace, tell us a little bit about, and I know this is a really big question. We'll break it down farther, but what are the big things, the first questions, the most important things that you need to think about in terms of voter education and candidate education? I view all these different pieces as voter education. It's just different paths to getting to voters. So I guess the key thing to define at the beginning of any voter education effort is which voters do we need to reach? That should be all of them, but also how do we reach voters? Candidates are an essential way to that, right? Candidates are actually most commonly the way voters find out there's even an election. And if a candidate's interested in voters voting for them, they need to educate them on how to do so. So we put that focus there with a voter education lens. And I can talk about kind of the more broad reform lens to why we educate candidates as well. But it's a twofold effort. I think changing election structures is the best time to re-engage voters. So I do view this from kind of a community engagement 
lens of, you know, we have something change in the rules, which gives us the opportunity to really conduct more thorough outreach than we would otherwise. I think this should be happening every election. And I know that there's a lot of organizations that work really hard to educate voters, but a conversation about a systems change is a little bit more involved. Oftentimes, you know, if a measure was passed by, you know, a city council, the voters might not be as aware of it as they could be. So some of it is raising awareness of the change more generally, but then also drilling down into people's lives and how this affects them as voters, how it affects who represents them. And so we really view voter education as kind of the key to sustaining a win. And implementation is where the rubber hits the road and you have to prove that those things are true, or you at least have to give voters the chance to create a new culture around their elections when you make these changes. It's interesting you say that because recently I was talking with an advocate in the RCV space, and we were talking about what happens post-win. And he said to me, he said, we really have to think about winning hearts and minds at that point, because you know, it's only going to be a successful reform if it stays in place and if voters don't understand or don't want or frankly don't care because we know that apathy is one of the biggest problems we face in our democracy these days. You know, we really have to win their hearts and minds to enjoy, to like, to love, to want to vote in a ranked choice voting election. So Julie, let's set the stage for your involvement in Alaska. So RCV passes. What next? So I wasn't part of the campaign, actually, when the RCV passed, although I did support the reforms. I came on in the beginning of 2022 when we were hitting our voter education efforts in full stride. And I think that really the next step is just making sure everyone understands the process and can use the process. And I think as everybody knows that's been following what's happening in Alaska, we had a very truncated timeline where we thought our first RCV election would be in November. And then with um, a special election and a vacancy, our timeline was very, very quick, and we ended up having a combination election. Our first ranked choice voting election was on the same ballot as uh, the regular scheduled primary. That made us really think through how best to educate voters. During the campaign, you talk a lot about what, what does RCV do, and, and how can this improve the system, and how can this improve who we initially get as candidates, and how can it improve who you know, eventually takes office. But I think that when we had to truncate that education process, we really made it a voter-centric education effort where we thought, if you're the voter and you didn't even know you were going to be coming up to an election, and it happens to be the first primary we've ever had for a special election vacancy, and it's the first at-home election we've ever done in the state of Alaska where everybody gets mailed a ballot, and there's 48 candidates on there, and we thought, you know, we need to do whatever we can to take any confusion out of the process so that we're not disenfranchising voters because they think it's going to be complicated. And it really made us get down to brass tacks and think about how do we make our education effort voter-centric. And in some ways, I think that that was one of the best things that could happen in the sense that we really thought, if you're the person going to the polls, how are you going to access that ballot? What is it you need? And that kind of informed all of our education efforts moving forward. The other thing where we had to pivot is that we had planned to reach out to a lot of partners and get them educated. And I call it the Prel commercial, right? You tell your friends and they tell their friends and get to everyone so that they understood the process and they could tell everyone else what the process was. And by having that short timeline, it made it so we couldn't put that, that background in place and get all of our partners up to speed. So we did have to really push the gas on that education effort and try to get out to as many people as we could in as short a time as possible. And 
that really pushed us to simplify our message, which I think in the long run really helped our education efforts overall. One thing that's funny about what Julie and her team pulled off is like, that's not where you get headlines, right? It's not going to be like, hey, this insane thing happened in our state and it went shockingly well. Let's all pause and celebrate. But that timeline was crazy. And the things that both, you know, the Alaska Division of Elections and Julie and her team were able to, it's just, it can never be talked about enough how amazing of a job they did. And just like how easily that could have gone wrong, but everybody did what they needed to do to make it go right. We don't write enough articles about that. Absolutely. And and honestly, if there's one thing that comes out of the podcast episode today, if we can really highlight that story, when I was listening to you go through the timeline again, and, and you know, of course, we've been around and have been involved in this, the Alaska implementation from the beginning. And I just thought, oh my goodness, that is a lot to get done in a short amount of time. It all fell into place, not by chance but because of the hard work that was put in and the team that was in place to do that in Alaska. And that was amidst some, you know, geographical challenges, time challenges. There are a lot of things, you know, in Alaska that we don't have in the lower 48 in terms of where people live and how we access where people live. Um, so, so, you know, it's a fantastic job. So let's talk a little bit. You mentioned community partners and, and trying to build that base and, and that you weren't able to really get that in place quite as quickly as you wanted. But you guys did, in the end, um, build some really great partnerships. So, Grace, tell us a little bit about why having community partnerships are important. And then, Julie, we'll let you fill in the background of what that looked like in Alaska. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the baseline of, of organizing around implementation, actually any campaign, is don't reinvent the wheel if you don't have to, right? We're talking about a lot of different communities. And this is across anywhere we've implemented ranked choice voting, not just Alaska. but there's so many different constituencies that you need to reach when you're educating voters. And the best way to reach them is through people that they trust in relationships that already exist. And so you could build up, you know, the advocates of a, of a certain reform could build up a huge organization with tons of organizers. And some have, you know, a larger organization or a larger structure can go broad. Community partners are what allow you to go deep. It's what allows you to have one-on-one conversations with voters It's what allows you to do culturally competent outreach. It's what allows you to do some of the better language work that you're going to see. The larger philosophy, right, is like people are experts in their own lives. We might just be applying elections jargon to that, but the information is in the community. So being able to tap in um, makes everything more efficient and everything more resonant when you do it. With our community partners, we had a plan and then a pivot, right? We had this plan where we're like, we should reach out to these people and we should reach out to these people and these have existing networks and all of that stuff. And then when our timeline got shortened, we pivoted. My goal was to get who isn't going to get that information through other means. Who are the people that maybe the candidates aren't going to you know, spend a lot of money or a lot of time trying to educate because they might not be their voters or they might not be super voters. And so when we initially... Um, thought about our community partners, I think our list was a little bit bigger, broader, looking for these larger community groups that maybe already had things in place. And then when we actually came down to what we felt we needed to do, we ended up partnering with, I think, smaller groups and and kind of more niche groups than initially we had planned. So I guess some of our partners that I would um, highlight were 
you know, English as a second language partners where we were trying to find people who could do translations for us. Partners like Get Out the Native Vote that already had some infrastructure in our rural districts, which might have a higher percentage of errors in ballots in a traditional election and might also have, as you had alluded to, some of the access issues where we really need to get somebody into those communities. They're not necessarily looking at, you know, regular TV we're using other methods or maybe fishermen who are already starting to get out in the field by the time the election education effort was taking off. So it was a different group of people, I think, than we had initially thought it might be only because we were really trying to make sure that people weren't being left behind. And I think that's something that uh, Michelle Spark with Get Out the Native Vote said, no village is left behind. And really, we didn't want any pockets of people left behind. And so we really try to concentrate our grant efforts on those people and, and thinking of creative ways to get to people. And it was probably our smallest project, but one of the things I'm most proud of is we partnered with the Food Bank, which sends out to indigent seniors everywhere, just a box of food that they have for the month. And it goes out once a month. And so if you think about how short our timeline already was, and when they had to pack those boxes to get them out to all of these people, you know, we ended up really pushing our timeline for this project to make sure that the actual pieces of paper got into each of these boxes, because we knew that these were going to be the people that, you know, weren't going to be looking on Twitter and they weren't going to be necessarily having great internet connections where they were. They didn't have big commercial television. And we thought, how do we get through to these people? And so just putting a piece of paper with some absentee voting information, a timeline, basic things, and the numbers they could call, because if you're dealing with people who aren't on the internet, you know, they need to be able to pick up the phone and call someone. And so I think that I'm most proud of that, even though it was a very small project, but it was a partnership where we brought um, people together. And then the ARP, who helped us with our messaging, actually ended up using the flyer that we did as an educational tool moving on. But we were able to just quickly get in there, get in with the food bank, figure out the logistics and get that message out to pretty much every village in Alaska in these boxes that, that go out there. Something you mentioned, you said the word grant. <laughs> And being a nonprofit person, I, I, I hear that word clearly. So let's talk funding for voter education. This may be general and also Alaska specific, but do we normally have money for voter education? I guess that's my big question. And how did you guys really fund the education efforts in Alaska? Most of our education efforts were funded by the same kind of pool of funders that funded the advocacy effort for the ballot measure. So you know, there's national groups that are interested in making sure that we're advocating for the ballot measure. And we're also interested in making sure that it was a successful education effort. We partnered very closely with also the Division of Elections, and um, we helped advocate to get them funding through the legislative appropriation process. I think they did a great job. That is one thing that I'll, you know, I will tell everyone is that the more you can partner with the implementers, the people who are in charge of making sure that it runs well, the better off you are, because we could make sure that we weren't putting both of our resources in the same place. We were kind of filling the holes that maybe division of elections didn't have the resources to do using everybody's money wisely. And also talking to them about some of their messaging that we were a little bit more nimble, not being a state entity. For example, one of the tenets of the reform is to have the top four primary and because we had 48 candidates in our first primary, there was a little confusion about whether or not they were supposed to rank them or pick four because it was the first thing out of the box. And so we had to pivot to the pick one primary, which is what we started calling it, so that everybody knew that they just voted for one just like every other primary. We were able to kind of 
make that pivot where our partners at Division of Elections maybe already had their RFP process and their things ready to go and, and weren't able to, to be as nimble. So we really tried to use our funds that we got from some of the national funders. We did not have a lot of in-state grant funding. There's a lot of, I think, competing interests going on with everybody that was on the ballot. And so it's hard to get private people who maybe have other places to put their money during a campaign season to put it necessarily towards an education effort. It doesn't necessarily giving them a result at the end of the day. So I think we were leaning on more of these, you know, larger nonprofits that could help us with our education efforts. And then the state, we did not receive any state funding, but helping, you know, augment that state funding that Division of Elections received. And I can give kind of a national lens here, and this is going to be a little bit more opinion than what Julia just shared. But I mean, I think it's really easy to know how you fund and get in on initiatives, right? That's a very clear win and lose. There is a, a clear end goal and, and the tasks that need to get done are very obvious. But I think sometimes it's less obvious what it takes to implement effectively. And it's actually the exact same formula. And I think we would be better served by viewing it that way. And I think we've seen some funders really emerge in this space who get it, who get that, you know, it's a lot easier to lose on an implementation. It's, it's very black and white with an initiative, but with an implementation, it can be all sorts of different things. And that loss can actually extend further if implementation doesn't go well. So I'm, I'm really happy to see um, the investment that we have more recently. But this is something where, again, uh, we're not running a bill, right? We're not running an initiative. We're not running a ballot question. What we're trying to do is make it work. And that often takes more work than just making the argument because you're proving the argument. And so I've been really happy to see more recently that there's more investment, but I hope that everyone understands the passage of a bill in a legislature, the passage of an initiative on the ballot is the halfway point of an effort. It's not the end of the road. And so um, while I love victory parties, have your victory party, but have your plan for the next day. And that, and hopefully as we go forward, that does involve funding to continue those activities because without it, um, you're leaving a lot up to chance and voters are very smart and they are intuitive and we know that they get this. But like Julie said, with all those competing interests, whether it's you know states funding their elections, whether it's all these candidates who need funding for their campaigns, it's a really crowded space to say, hey, but the process still matters. So I hope we continue in the direction that we are, where we fund those efforts, because also asking people to do education work for free, a lot of them will, but they shouldn't have to. You know, we always say at the Resource Center, because our focus is implementation, that the only successful campaign is a successful first implementation, because that's when the rubber meets the road. And that's when, you know, you see, does this reform work for this community? And Excellent preparation um, really is important. I, I like the point you made, Grace, about you know winning that ballot initiative, passing that legislation, changing that charter, halfway point. There's a lot more to the plan than just you know stopping there and saying, okay, let's just let's implement this, and not providing the education, not providing the the implementation help. So, Grace, I know that your organization has focused quite a bit on language justice issues. What does that look like in um, a voting situation? And I know Alaska has some unique language needs that are, have to be addressed with any election. So I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of what does that generally look like? And then what does it look like in Alaska? Yeah. So, I mean, there are language requirements set forth by the Voting Rights Act that communities have to be responsive to kind of larger language groups that exist in communities and provide materials in those languages. There is a baseline there. 
But when we talk about language justice, often if you go on your city's website and look up how your elections work, it's technical language a lot of the time. I've been in this space for a long time and I'll go on, you know, like a lieutenant governor's website to learn about something and it will feel over my head, right? And I'm a native English speaker and all those things. So what we've done in the past is partner with community groups working directly with communities. I'll name a few. The New York Immigration Coalition, the Ming Kwan Center for Community, I believe Community Action. Those two are out of New York City. Comunidades Unidas, which is in Salt Lake City. I'm hoping that those are all correct. There's so many partners that we've worked with that I don't want to jumble them up. But we worked with folks to do some focus groups with folks in language. Um, so I'll try and rattle off the languages that we did this in over the course of 2021. Spanish for sure, Arabic, Cantonese, Mandarin, Bangla, Korean, and I believe that's it, but not necessarily. And doing focus groups to understand what messages resonate, to try an initial translation of these concepts and see if that makes sense to folks. If there's a better way to say it, what's the feedback? What does that bring up for you? Because just like I feel that way about language that I've seen on, on websites or various uh, materials from jurisdictions, if it doesn't resonate, it can feel like it's not for you, right? And voting is for everybody, uh, or we want it to feel that way. And so what we've tried to do is find more accessible language or, you know, it can even come down to like, you know, in this place, you would use this word instead of this one in language. The translation might be technically correct, but it isn't effective, right? And so testing that with audiences rather than just saying we've done this. And I know that there's a lot of processes that folks do to translate materials, but I guess we're trying to do less translating and more developing in language. So having that, those be parallel tracks rather than developing messaging in English and then translating it for other audiences. So having that move at once. And we found that to be really effective. And also you want to be inspired about democracy. These focus groups were incredible, absolutely incredible. And the idea that, you know, I think you talk about politics broadly and you turn people off, but when you dig down to the local level, one, there are some brilliant political minds all over this country, and, and it's a matter of asking folks what they think, but also just nuance on local issues. In one of our focus groups, there was like a really in-depth conversation about trash pickup and how the city could do a better job. And getting those things say, okay, this community, this is a thing that's affecting this neighborhood where a lot of folks who speak this language live. Let's say, you know, if you're ranking candidates, maybe you need to think about where they stack up on this trash pickup issue and what they're going to do about it. So. It's just a way to be inclusive in the way that we do our outreach and make sure that uh, we are capturing the experiences of communities and factoring that into how we reach out to them. I think that's really great. It's funny because I've, I've done some work in my local community with our Adult Literacy Council, and we have a lot of new citizens and, um, of course, new language learners. And we did some focus groups and had some similar conversations. Hey, I don't want to get too far off the track because this is not about elections per se, but it is about language and, you know, about how we can integrate people better into our communities. So that's really great. I love that process. And I think that's an important part of the work you guys are doing. So Julie, what does it look like in Alaska when we talk about different languages? I would just like to echo a little bit of what Grace is saying before I start to talk about Alaska specific, although I guess this would be Alaska specific as well, 
is that it's not a matter of translation. It's also a matter of, you know, being culturally relevant to how people access that and how they learn about things and making sure that the examples are things that they care about and they want to learn about. Even the cadence of speech, like what we found was when we tabled at places where we had Alaskan elders, you couldn't give them the 30-second elevator speech, which we had all worked on perfecting because they want to sit down and they want to have an exchange of information. And so what was more relevant to them and what was an easier way for them to learn is to have panels. And so we actually stopped kind of doing that kind of very quick table, or if we were doing the table, we would make sure that we had some time set aside to do paneling or some other in-depth, because they don't want you to be throwing a lot of information at them very quickly. They want to understand how it impacts, you know, what, what they're doing. And then on the other hand, we had a great partnership with Sol de Medinoche, and they had these just rapid fire Spanish, you know, Twitter and videos and everything was going, everything's coming at you and there's just everything everywhere. It's very important to understand that that's, you know, their constituency and their, how they were accessing that information. And then with the Simones, we sat down and we had food and talked about things and had that kind of a, a little bit more, you know, casual exchange of information. And so I think that in Alaska specifically, um, I believe that there's 10 languages that legally they have to translate into, and that's eight native languages, as well as Spanish and Tagalog. But it's not just a matter of that you know, translation. And one of the things that was so exciting about our partners that we worked with is a lot of them had already been doing work. And how do we get to these non-English speaking groups? And how do we get information to them? And so it's all holistic. I believe that things are in a way, all holistic in the sense that you can't talk about translation without talking about how to get in and be a trusted messenger. And where do you find those trusted messages for these pockets of the population that maybe will not be able to access information in the way we are used to delivering it? And it was very exciting that some of our partners were already you know, learning how to communicate with their constituencies. And I think it's why it's so important to you know, meet people where they are in the sense that find those trusted messengers for them instead of putting your words out there and having them translate it is just making sure that it's getting to the people in a way that they can really access that information. One thing I want to add there is I feel like we talk about people being left behind a fair amount. And actually what Julie just said highlights that we should be inverting that. It's making sure everybody's already here. And I think the Alaska effort did an amazing job with that and those parallel efforts. Sol de Medianoche is a wonderful example of an organization where the work was going in parallel, but also like we could all stand to learn from how they messaged and the graphics that they developed. The initial language shouldn't matter. Like the lessons are so obvious and I can't stress enough how brilliant their work was. I want to pick up also on something you said, Julie, that trusted messenger idea also works outside of language issues. You know, where my mom grew up, my dad grew up, you wouldn't send somebody from the big city in to ta teach them about how to do ranked choice voting. You would send someone in from the, you know, farmer's market who they had known all their life, who maybe coached their kid in, in you know, t-ball or whatever to teach them about ranked choice voting. So I think trusted messengers is really important and people hear things differently from a trusted messenger. Um, so it's a great concept to remember as we're thinking about educating our voters and um, also our candidates. So what are some lessons learned? What are some things that you really think people need to know, number one, about voter and candidate education? 
And number two, are there some things you wish you had done differently or that you've done in the past that you, you know, are things to avoid for others who are looking at educating voters and candidates? A couple of things that come to mind first is, I mean, make your plans, but you need to be prepared to pivot and you need to listen more than you speak in the sense that, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, when you put education efforts out, when you put information out, it needs to be accessible to the people that you're educating. And you need to be able to listen to that feedback and continually be assessing your plan and seeing where people are getting it, what are people getting. And one of the things that I thought we would have to do when we initially came in was get all this collateral. And I felt like we started really behind and we didn't have our rap cards and we didn't have our pamphlets and we needed to send everything out. And what I learned was everybody learned better when you showed them a ballot. We could teach my daughter who's 14 could teach five-year-olds to vote by showing them the ballot. And so the second thing that I think is incredibly important is integration with the implementation entity. So in this case, Division of Elections did an awesome job making a ballot that was actually easy to read and easy to fill out. But by working with them and making sure that we were echoing their talking points and we were trying to augment their messages, um, using the same words as much as possible, pivoting to show people their rat cards and show people the actual ballots and pivoting to send them to Division of Elections website, because then our voters were getting consistent messaging throughout. And I think that that was incredibly important because the process that we had, I will say that I don't think ranked choice voting was all that confusing. It seems that people got it. We had a great like 99.9% of ballots were filled out correctly, but the process itself was with the special election and the two elections happening concurrently was confusing and being able to be lockstep with the implementing agency and echo their words was, I think, good for the electorate to be able to be getting the same message twice, as opposed to maybe hearing certain words from us and certain words from someone else and causing additional confusion. As far as lessons learned, the list is endless, but I think a few key things that we always take. Voter education is for everyone, and so you have to figure out who everyone is, and that cannot be confined by who supported or opposed a ballot measure, a bill, whatever it is. So whoever may have been your political enemy before it passed, you have to ignore that. It doesn't mean the engagement is going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to go well, but it still means that you have to do it. I experienced that with political groups or candidates themselves, but often those are some of the best conversations that I've had when we've gotten through the initial, hey, I don't think we like each other. We got to the other side and found that we usually did, or at least we could agree that voters should be able to vote and we want to make sure that they know how. And that ties in with the one other piece of advice that I'll give is skepticism and concern for communities is not opposition. And so viewing people who may say, hey, I don't know if my community is going to get this is not someone who hates what you're doing. It's someone who really is concerned about their community's ability to use their political voice. And so being solutions oriented when it comes to those moments is essential as Julie said, pivoting is the name of the game in any campaign. I do view these as campaigns, but being able to ground yourself in that your job is to educate everyone. And you can actually build some really amazing relationships when you kind of get over those perceived divisions or those perceived barriers. Excellent advice. I'm glad that you said that because I've heard you say those words before about, you know, really looking at it in that through that lens. And thank you for sharing that. So our signature RCB Clips question, voter and candidate education in three words or less. Messengers, that'd be my word. Just one. Or I guess trust. Trust in messengers. There we go. (laughs) 
And I think mine would be accessibility. And in that case, I mean accessibility for the person who is learning about it, make it accessible to them, and also getting out there and accessing as many of these communities as you can. Great. Thank you all so much. Can't wait to share your knowledge and your information on the RCB Clips podcast. So thank you for being a part of this. Hope you guys will come back again as guests and we'd love to talk to you again. So thank you. Thank you. It was really fun. Thank you for the opportunity. And now for this month's final round, where we share an interesting bit of trivia, a useful tidbit, or something we just thought was cool for folks to know about ranked choice voting. Here's Melissa Hall with this month's final round. Did you know that ranked choice voting has been used to make decisions other than elected political leaders? Since the 1930s, the Oscars have used proportional ranked choice voting to select their nominees for most major categories. Industry experts rank up to five candidates when submitting their ballot, and a nominee must get about 17% to be nominated. Last place candidates are eliminated until five nominees are selected. This example in ranked choice voting and better representation makes it this month's final round. Thank you for joining us today for the February 2023 RCB Clips episode produced by the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center. You can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to the show for the latest episodes and updates, and take a minute to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. For more information about RCVRC and Ranked Choice Voting, check out our website at www.rcvresources.org. The production of this podcast is supported by the generosity of our donors. Donations can be made directly on the website or by texting donate RCV, all caps and all one word, to 51555. Please don't hesitate to contact us with any donation questions at donate at rcvresources.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at rcvresources and on Facebook and LinkedIn at Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at RCVRC. If you have a few minutes, fill out the listener survey linked in the show notes for this episode. The survey is short and will only take a few minutes of your time. We would love to hear your feedback and ideas. Our theme music today is Flutterbee by Pottington Bear. Until next time, I'm Kelly on behalf of the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center. Thank you.